All right, good afternoon, church. It's a great privilege to be here again preaching. Uh, it has been a while. I was looking at my calendar. Last time I preached was March 26th, so almost three months now. And yeah, I'm really glad we can open God's Word together. Uh, so we're going to be in Jonah 4, so you can start like opening your Bible. I know you're going to take like probably five minutes, so while I do my introduction, you can try to find Jonah in your Bible. Um, and as you guys know, like we are doing this series in Jonah, so today we are finishing this series. And I forgot to introduce myself. If you're your first time here, my name is Nina. I'm one of the pastors here at Trails for more five weeks until we're going to be sent to Calgary to this, do this new plant church, uh, to plant this new church. And I want to welcome you here. So before we enter into our text, uh, I want to ask you a question, or a few questions. So the first one, uh, have you heard of, man, that's a, a German name, so there are some Germans here. I probably like not say the right pronunciation, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was it good? Dietrich <laughs> Bonhoeffer? Yeah, but, but he's a, he was German. <laughs> so that's probably not the right pronunciation. But he was a German theologian, pastor, anti-Nazi dissident and who was actively opposing Hitler and the Nazi regime. And so Bonhoeffer's most notable involvement in this it was in the resistance against Hitler. He was, in his, he was participating in a conspiracy to overthrow Hitler and the Nazi regime. And he used all his contacts and his position within the military intelligence agency to help Jews escape persecution. And he worked together to support the, the, resistance, uh, the resistance movement. Uh, Bonhoeffer himself did not express a personal desire to kill Hitler, as some people think, um, but he was aware of an assassination plot against Hitler. And he ended up being, going to jail. He paid the ultimate price for his resistance. He was arrested in 1943 and executed two years later in 1945. Now you probably know this regime was responsible for the systematic persecution, mass murder of approximately, they say like six million Jews. And not just Jews were killing, but different groups were, were uh, putting like enforced labor, mass shootings, and all these extermination camps, if you know history. And, but yeah, the, the Jews were like maybe one of the biggest groups that were persecuted by this regime. And, Many Christians, they discuss if what Bonhoeffer said, uh, did was correct and if it was right for a Christian to be involved in this kind of plot to overthrow the Nazi regime. And, and we all need to recognize it's a very complex situation. But now imagine you're living during that time and you're called to preach in Germany. And not just to preach in general, but like you're called to preach to the Nazi. You see all the violence and the evil around you. Would you be willing to go and preach to Hitler, the Nazi, and ask the Lord to bring salvation in their lives and they, they come into repentance and be saved and turn into God? Would you be praying for Hitler's salvation during that time? When you watch all those documentaries about like this, this period, when you see the, the Nazis, is the sentiment, the feeling in your heart, one of love, compassion, grace towards those people, toward those soldiers? Now, I don't know if there is any Jew here, but imagine you had your family persecuted by this regime, and now God sends you as a Jew to go preach it to this same Nazi soldiers and people in power during this time. And knowing that God's plan through your preaching, through the message he gave you is to bring repentance and show them mercy. Would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to sacrifice your life in a mission like that? Are those people worth it of this sacrifice? 
Would you be willing to sacrifice maybe your reputation among your peers, your fellow Jews and other people in the Western world to go preach to these monsters? And even if you go out of obedience, would your heart be a heart of love for those people? Would your preaching be out of love or out of anger, willing that God would punish them and bring wrath upon them? And that's the question we are exploring today. The text we found in Jonah 4 is this look into the prophet's heart. Why did he flee to Tarshish when God first called him? Why such a resistance to obey God in this situation? And we see that obedience to God and faith in, in God goes way more profoundly than we, we like to imagine and we like to admit. So let's read our text together and then pray. And let's ask God to help us to understand the text. So Jonah 4, from verse 1 to the last one. It says, but... He displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it, it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dog came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he was asked that he might die, and he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to leave. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand for their left, and also much cattle. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for everything you already did in our midst in this, this moment we are gathered together as your church. We thank you because we can sing songs of praise to you and to your mercy and that we can approach your throne of grace in boldness and freedom because of the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. We are thankful because we can find repentance and mercy, mercy in your presence. But we ask, Lord, we, we want more. We want you now be transformed by your word. We know your word is alive, your word is powerful, and your word is the light we need for our life. So transform our lives now, Lord. Don't let it be just one more Bible study. Don't let it be just information in our heads, but that we can have our hearts transformed. I ask the Lord that you can give this church today a baptism of love. Give us the heart of Christ. Teach us to love the way Christ loves. Jesus said that we would be known 
by the way we love each other. We would be known as disciples of Christ by the way we love each other. And we want to have this supernatural love in us. Help us, Lord, in this moment that my mouth can be your mouth, God, talking to your people. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So our, te our text starts in text one, in verse 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. So the question is, what displeased Jonah? So it, we need to go back to chapter 3 that Chris preached last week for us. So verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from the evil ways, God relented from disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So as Chris explained last week in his sermon, the text in Hebrew here expressed more than Jonah being displeased. But he saw this act of God in relenting from disaster as exceedingly evil. We can be naive and simplistic here, thinking that Jonah was just an evil man who liked to see people suffering. He wanted to see people burning. No, that's not the case at all. The, the, the problem here is that the Ninevites, they were exceedingly evil. So if you, if you go study history, they, the, the Ninevites, they were part of the Assyrian Empire. They would seize cities, starve whole populations to death. They would enslave the conquered people. They would deport and relocate them. They used different methods of torture, like impalement among other records of ex excessive violence and destruction. They were very vile people. There are records of them beheading and exposing their, their heads of their enemies all around the cities in spikes. And the, the Assyrians, they were known for their brutality and their desire to demonstrate their power and dominance over the conquered people. Some historians, they estimate that they killed some millions of people as well as they, in their con conquest campaigns. So the scenario, the scenario you have here is not so different from what we saw in Nazi Germany. And for the prophet God, Jonah, it wasn't just for God to just forgive those people and relenting from, from disaster, not just unfair, but it was evil. How can you let them go with all vile things they're doing. Imagine today if a judge decided to not punish a rapist or a murderer. How would you feel about that? You think, yeah, it's fine. It's mercy. That's how things should. That's not the way we feel about those things. We, we want to see justice, to see punishment. And we would see this judge not just an unfair judge, but an evil judge. How can you let someone like this, just go away. And that's the tension here. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, our Lord Jesus teaches that, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So if you're truly a Christian, you have this strong and intense desire for righteousness and justice. You have this personal craving for righteousness in your heart. You want to pursue it with your own life. So you're not indifferent to the world around you. You look to, at the evil, the violence, the injustice in the world. And you want God to interfere and establish justice. It, it's impossible for a true Christian to look to the atrocities of the Nazi regime or the Atlantic slave trade, or the abortion industry today, and don't feel anything about it. And many times all we want is God to come and judge and punish the evil, and punish the people responsible for these evil acts. And how can we balance our hunger and our thirst for righteousness? with what comes in the next verse of the Mount. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for 
for they will be shown mercy. You are to be thirsty and hunger for righteousness, for justice. Blessed are the merciful. And it is here where things get complicated because we are called to deeply desire right, the righteousness of God and be merciful at the same time. And we are called to be this way because God is this way. And we are created to reflect God. We are image bearers of God. And in the Bible, we find a God who is just, who is righteous, who is holy. The Bible says that God hates evil. And on the other hand, we are presented to a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and who relents from disaster. So what we see here in our text is Jonah questioning God's justice. There is an accusation here. He thinks that the way God is acting here is actually evil. It's unfair. It's unjust. And he doesn't want to be part of it. So what does he do? He prays. Look with me at his prayer, verse 2 and 3. So he says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life. But it is better for me to die than to live. So here, at this point in the book, we are made aware of the reason Jonah fled from Tarshish. So he was not afraid of dying in the hands of the Ninevites, as some think. It's not because he didn't want to be a prophet and he was trying to escape his calling, as some churches preach. He, he wanted to be a prophet. And he was specifically refusing to go to Nineveh. The problem is that he understood God's intent in sending him there. And he didn't agree with that. Jonah was not mistaken in his theology. It wasn't a theological problem. We see here that Jonah had a correct theology of the character of God. He was basically quoting from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So, it's not just his understanding of the character of God that was correct, but you see that his application of his theology was correct. God didn't tell him he was going to relent from disaster, but like, knowing who you are, I know you're, what you're planning to do. His application was correct too. He understood that God sending a prophet to this city, to this wicked city, was already an indication of his mercy. And a sign of God's desire for them to repent and be saved. As we, we study in 1 Timothy 2.4, God desired all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or Peter, in 2 Peter 3.9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. God wanted even the Ninevites to repent and be saved. And that was really hard for Jonah to swallow. And it, as if it was enough for the Jew Imagine you're a Jew, you have this, your worst enemies, and God wants you then to repent. God wants you to save them. But now God wants you to be part of it. He wants you to be his instrument to make it happen. And for John, it was better to die. He didn't want these people to be shown mercy. And it was a shame for him to be part of what, in his view, was the evil act of mercy. So there are multiple things I want you to see here. The first one is that good theology 
and even good application of theology or discernment of God's will is not enough for us. Those things are really good, but there is something that's even more important, which is faith in a transformed heart. Friends, I think we need a consulate to be reminded that we are not saved by our good theology. We are saved by faith alone, amen? And when I'm doing that, I'm saying this, I'm not separating faith from good theology. But I want you to understand that faith is more than good theology. The, the reformers, they used to say that the faith has three components. So they used three Latin words, notitia, sensus, and fiducia, as the components of faith. So the first one, notitia, is knowledge. So this common refer, refers to the intellectual understanding or knowledge of the truth contained in the Bible. So that's where good theology resides. So it's important to, to have good theology. That's where faith starts. And then comes the ascent, the ascent to the truth. It goes beyond mere, mere intellectual knowledge, but it involves accepting and affirming that the claims of the Bible are accurate and trustworthy. But then go beyond that. The fiducia is the trust. It's the personal trust, reliance on God's word. It's placing your confidence, your hope, everything you have in your being in the word and the promises of God. It's to build your life upon this truth. Now I'm not suggesting that Jonah didn't have saving faith. We saw in chapter 2 in his prayer that in the belly of the fish, he relies entirely and only in the God of Israel for his salvation. So my, my, my understanding here is that the problem here is not a, a, a salvation, a justification issue, but it is a sanctification issue. Jonah's theology is correct, but it is incomplete. And his trust in the Lord's way as good and right and perfect is yet incomplete. Friends, faith is not a static thing. Faith is not something that you just gain the first, when you first become a Christian, then just stays the same to the end. The Bible teaches that our faith needs to be purified. Our faith needs to be made stronger. Our faith needs to grow. So I think it's wrong to read the book of Jonah and think that he's been constantly punished for his disobedience here. Because that's what many people say, oh, God's just giving Jonah such a hard time because he doesn't want to obey. All you need to do now is obey so God starts punishing you. And that's not what's happening here. The storm, the belly of the fish, the killing of the plant that gives him the shade and the scorching wind are not punishments, but are signs of the loving hand of God disciplining a son. The Lord is sanctifying Jonah. He's teaching him. He's shaping him into his image. He wants the prophets not just to be his mouthpiece, but he wants Jonah to be his image among this pagan nation. In the same way, from a broader perspective, he wants Israel to be the light to the nations, the light to the world. He wants Israel to be his people and reflect his glory in his entirety. As we see, as Paul puts in Colossians 1, Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. So different from Jonah, who wants to die after having done God's will, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You see the difference? And God wants us to be like Jesus, not doing the will of the Father as if it was a terrible thing, a bitter thing to do, but he wants the doing of his will to be our food. God wants us to be like Jesus, not doing the will of the Father because we are being coerced to do it, but because our heart is burning of this desire to be obedient to him to accomplish his mission. So doing the will of the Father should be what gives you life, what energizes you, 
what gives the fuel, the reason you need to live. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. So today, one thing I want you to be asking yourself and praying for at the end of the sermon is, God, thank, thank you for giving me the understanding of the word, but give me now the heart of love that Jesus Christ had. Give me the heart of Jesus. And that doing your will may be the food I need for life. Some Christians, they, they live like Muslims. They think it's all about submitting to God. But God does not just want you to submit to Him. He wants you to have abundant life. Through obedience and by being an instrument in His hands. And that's the difference between a religion and a true relationship with God. Religion will leave you crushed and burned after having done everything you ought to do. You just want to die. A true Christianity is a true relationship with the Lord. And it removes the burden. It gives you life. As Romans 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the Lord wasn't punishing Jonah all the way. He was actually acting to restore and sacrifice this broken prophet. And he was treating Jonah as a beloved son. So church, I want you to see that from the beginning, Jonah knew that God was doing something. And he told God, oh Lord, is not that what I said when I was yet in my country? So we learn here that there was a conversation between God and Jonah even before the book started. And the Lord, yes, that's, I want you. I, and I know you're going to resist, but I have something to, to do in your life. And I want you to see here that God doesn't even try to justify his acts. He does not give Jonah a philosophical explanation lecture for how he's planning to do and what he's planning to do in Nineveh is not evil. He's not trying to lecture Jonah like the problem of evil and the problem of suffering. How can I? No, that's not God's approach in this situation. Because God knows what Jonah needs is more than information in his head, but he needs a renewed heart. And he needs to learn to trust the Lord and to have joy in accomplishing his work. Because the will of God is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect, as we find in Romans 12. So look at God's answer to Jonah's prayer in verse 4. God just asks one question, it says, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This question is better translated as, is your anger doing any good, Jonah? Is it producing any good? And he asks basically the same question again, verse 9. Verse 9 says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plan? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So we see here God showing Jonah the difference between his anger, the anger, God's anger, and Jonah's own anger. So in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, we see the king of the, the Ninevites saying, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is, it is, is, is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his first fierce anger so that we may not perish. So on one side, we have a God's anger causing an entire city to reconsider their ways and to repent and turn from evil. And on the other side, we have Jonah's anger just causing trouble to himself and to everyone around him. His anger just causes frustration and a desire for death. So as James 119 puts it, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of men 
does not produce the righteousness of God. And that's the problem with us many times. We think our anger or rage, even against evil in the world, we produce the righteousness of God. But we will not. Your anger against the evil in the world will not produce the righteousness of God. Now the question, do you know what reveals the righteousness of God to the world? Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The gospel is what's going to fill you. The gospel is the bread and water that will satiate your soul. Is not God sending fire from heaven upon your enemies, upon the evil, the people you believe to be evil, that will bring satisfaction to your soul? It is the gospel. And you know why? Because it was in the crucifixion, Jesus going to the cross and died on behalf of sin. In his suffering and his death, that the wrath of God against sin was satisfied. So God's vindication, his defense against Jonah's accusation was finally revealed on the cross. The reason God could relent from disaster and forgive the Ninevites is that he was going to take the penalty of their sin upon himself. And he was placed in the disaster that was prepared for the Ninevites upon Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul teaches in Romans 3, 23 to 26. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the just fire of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God in his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. In other words, he allowed sin to go unpunished for a very long time. And that would be evil as Jonah accused but Jesus, by, shedding his, by the shedding of his blood, paid the price of these sins God did not punish in the past. And his righteousness is finally and ultimately manifested, demonstrating how God can be just and the justifier of those who trust him, those who repent and turn to him. So the answer to Jonah's anger is the gospel. The answer to Jonah's accusation against God is the gospel. In the gospel, we now have a full understanding of the gospel, different from Jonah, because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. All he had available to, him, to, to himself was a promise in the writing of the ones who came before him, like Moses. But for Jonah, as we see in our text, the mercy of God was really clear, but the gospel not as much. And in verse 5, we see that he is still hoping that God will judge the city of Nineveh. So verse 5 says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade so he should see what would become of the city. So they preached the message God gave him. The people repented and God relented from disaster. But Jonah was still waiting for the punishment to come. 
He couldn't understand how God could just leave things this way. But now comes the final lesson God offered Jonah, which I think points clearly to the gospel and God's intentions. So let's read from verse 6 to 9 again. It says, Now the Lord Lord God appointed a plan and made it come, up, come, come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. But when the dog came up, the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he was asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So there is a doctrine that shapes the, back, the backdrop of the whole book of Jonah's, Jonah, and it's important for us to understand it before we go to our conclusion, and it's the doctrine of providence. So this doctrine affirms that God's active and sovereign control of all creation, guiding and governing all events and circumstances in accordance to his divine purpose. It teaches that God is not merely a passive observer of the world, but is actively involved in sustaining, directing everything that happens. And we saw this really clear throughout all the book of Jonah. So Jonah 1.4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Jonah 1.15, and the sea ceased from its raging after they threw Jonah in the sea. And so God made the, the, the storm to cease. Jonah 1.17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah 2.10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah uh, out upon the dry land. Jonah 4, 6, the Lord God appointed the plant and made it come, come up over Jonah. Jonah 5, 7, God appointed the worm that attacked the plant. Jonah 4, 8, God appointed a scorched east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. So church, the, the Lord is not just the creator of everything. As Jonah states in chapter 1, he's talked to the mariners, but he controls and guides everything. And that's another hard to swallow pill for many of us. Many Christians would rather believe that everything good that happens comes from the Lord. But everything either bad or uncomfortable or sad or challenged doesn't come from the Lord. But the, the reality is all, all those things, they come from the Lord too. And although the Lord is not the author of evil, we know that even evil exists and happens according to his divine permission and guidance. God is, for example, the creator of this angel who has fallen and became Satan. He was the one who placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He is the one who allowed Satan to be in the garden. We saw in the Gospels God allowing Satan to test Peter. Or we can go to the book of Job and see Satan asking the Lord to test Job, and the Lord says yes. And he is the one in our story controlling the winds, the sea, from the biggest creature, the big fish, to the smallest creature, the, the worm. He, will, he is the one who makes the plant grow and kills it. He is the one who gives Jonah the comfort of the shade of the plant and then removes it. And then it makes even worse sin and scorching wind to beat his head. He makes Jonah exceedingly glad because of the plant. And he causes him to desire to die by killing the plant. What are you doing, Lord? So this understanding is what gives Paul the assurance to write Romans 8, 28. So it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now the doctrine of providence can cause us two different, can cause two different feelings in our hearts. One, you can start feeling like Jonah, questioning God's goodness. How can God be good and sovereign of everything and let the things be the way they are? 
Our truth is doctrine when joined with a mature faith that knows and is sure that God's good, perfect, and holy. We bring you to the same conclusion Paul reached here, that everything works together for our good. So what is in your heart? And the problem many times for us is that we are good when God brings us the good things into your life, but we are not, and we like the comfort, we like the shade of the plant, but when He removes those things, we are not so pleased. And that's not the God I, I serve. We want the shade of the plant to protect us from the sun. But God is aiming for a greater good for us. He wants to purify us. He wants to make us more like himself. He wants to make us more like Jesus Christ. God wants us not just to know and understand good theology, but he wants us to become the incarnation of it. He wants his will and in accomplishing his work to be our food. Now coming back to Jonah's story, we see that this plan made him very glad, exceedingly glad. And the death of the plan made him very sad and angry to the point of death. So he was pitying this plan that God pointed out. As, as God pointed out, he did not make the plant grow. He did not labor for this plant. And he was pitying this plant. And God answers him one more time. Verse 10, he says, yeah, And the Lord said, You pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came to be in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pit Nineveh, the great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle. So, I understand that the Lord is pointing Jonah here back to creation. So if we go back to Genesis, we see that the Lord working is working to create everything that exists, the earth and the sea, all the animals, and then the human beings. And the Bible says that God saw that everything he has made was good, was very good. And God's heart was glad with his creation. And then something come, a warm crept in and attacked God's creation and killed it. So through the sin of Adam, sin entered the world and through sin, death. And now God's heart towards Creation, as the one who labored to bring it to existence, is one of anger and pity, compassion to the point of death. But God's anger and willingness to die are not like Jonas. But his anger and compassion generate life. It brings regeneration, it brings redemption, it brings things to a place much better than they were before. So friends, can you comprehend God's mercy? In his anger against evil and his hunger and thirsty for righteousness, what he does? He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, and he poured his wrath upon him. Jesus faced the disaster the Ninevites should face. And Jesus faced the disaster we should face. As Paul says in Ephesians, we were by nature children of wrath, bound to disaster. But God, in his scandalous mercy, he relented from disaster and poured it upon Jesus Christ. And friends, the worst disaster a human being can face is not the destruction of a city or dying any excruciating death. The worst disaster is being forsaken by God. It's facing the wrath of the holy, just, and all powerful God against your sin. That's the worst disaster anyone can live. But now for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, 
That's the salvation you're receiving. Instead of wrath and disaster, you now have mercy, love, eternal life, abundant life. A life you don't deserve. A mercy you don't deserve. But because of Jesus Christ, God can extend mercy to you. He can justify you. And continue to be a just judge. Now when we think about the people that we see as our worst enemies or the most vile people in the world. The worst people in our society from murderers to those who abuse or pervert children. From the politicians who use their positions of authority to go against God. To the people who murder babies through abortion. From the false teachers who pervert the gospel and God's word to the pagans who practice witchcraft. God doesn't want them to perish. God looks to those people who do not know the right hand from the left hand and he pities them. Why Jesus said when he was in the cross, God, please forgive them. They don't know what you do. They don't know the difference from the right from the left. We serve a God who wants all the kinds of people to be saved. From the richer to the poorest, from the king, from the peasant, from the more vile to the Pharisee. And the most important thing for you to ask yourself today, if you're a Christian, is I have all this theology. All this theory about God in my head. But do I share in the heart of God? Do I share in the heart of Jesus Christ? Am I willing to die to sacrifice my life for the salvation of my enemies? Am I willing to sacrifice my life to bring the gospel to those who are far from God? Those who are today his enemies. As I was at the point. Am I willing to give up my comfort, my reputation, my cultural preferences, my me time to bring the only message that can save people from eternal disaster? Friends, we all have this calling to preach the gospel to the lost. But sometimes it feels like the church is just full of Jonas who would rather do anything else Rather than bring the message of salvation to the lost. So church, one final question for us. What is more concerning when you look to our country? Is it more concerning to see a world full of people living in darkness, practicing evil, and walk, walking towards hell? Or is it more concerning to see a church full of people with the message that can bring salvation and light to this world, but they are not willing to share it. Is it the end approaching the, our love growing cold, as Jesus prophesied? That we don't care enough? I don't have anything against like you going on vacation this summer. But how can we live our lives and do our thing and go on vacations and spend our money with all those things? And we don't have time for the lost. In our talks in the church, in our small groups, we talk about how bad the world is. But what are you doing about it? Are you answering the call to go and preach the gospel to those people? Are you putting your life at risk, your reputation, everything at risk, giving your time to bring the only message that can save those people from disaster? What else God needs to do to make us obey His will? So as I pray at the beginning and I have been saying during the message, I, I want us all to pray for God to give us this love because it's not something we can create in our own hearts. Loving our friends, the easiest thing to do, even the most vile person love his enemies. Loving our enemies is a fruit of the Spirit. It's just something who is abiding in Jesus Christ can do. And that's our calling. Amen?
Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you because of our love for us. A love, a love we didn't deserve. We were your enemies. We were created, God, as children. We were, we were born as children of wrath. But while we are still your enemies, you died for us. You have shown this great mercy to us and many times we we're not willing to show it to our neighbors, to the people around us. So I ask the Lord for forgiveness. Forgive your church. Forgive your church for this lack of love for the world. This lack of love for the people who are perishing around us. Forgive us when we look to the people who are your enemies. And all we want is them to be destroyed. Give us the heart of Jesus, God. Just don't forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they are doing. And if you can use me to be an instrument of salvation in their lives. Change our hearts, Lord. I ask, Lord, give us, everyone here, a heart of love. A heart of love for the lost. A heart of love for the worst people in this world. Sin blinds us, Lord. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. Help us to be these instruments of healing, God. To remove the blindness, to give sight again. To show those people the love and the mercy, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The beauty of Jesus Christ. As Paul was once a murderer, a persecutor of Christ, and he became a great apostle. As I was a great sinner, God, and became your servant, I ask, Lord, save many more. And that your church can truly reflect your character in this land. In the name of Jesus, amen.